All right, we have been working through the process of uh, learning how to study the Bible for ourselves. And um, I think the, the process of Bible study is lot, a lot like the show Law and Order. Um, the original Law and Order no longer, um, they don't, don't have it on TV anymore, but it's one of my favorite shows. And um, they, uh, at the beginning of the show, they start out with a crime, and the goal of the detective is to try to just see the overall clues, see what's going on. And then as they get to the middle of the program, they're getting down into the details, so kind of like the CSI type work, um, where they're looking at the details, the blood samples, the statements of the people, finding out a little bit deeper, rather than just looking at the crime scene and seeing all the clues, they're getting down deeper. And then the final part of the show is where they take it to the courtroom and they effectively take what they know about what happened and apply it to the uh, the person who is alleged to commit the crime. And in, in many ways, that's exactly what it looks like to study the Bible. We start out with an overview, what we call observation, where we're kind of looking at the overall clues. We call this more the telescopic view. Um, we want to just get an idea of what the author has, what, what the author is saying. So let me grab your... So observation is, is uh, noticing what it says, noticing what the text says. Then interpretation is kind of the getting into the, the details, the, the nitty-gritty of, of the clues um, from the text. So it's understanding what it meant, understanding what it meant. And then application is using what it means. So we have to be careful not to just skip all the way to application. That's usually what we want to do, right? We want to take a text of Scripture and we want to apply it. We'll talk about that, skipping the second step and the danger that comes from that here in just a little while. All right, so noticing what it says, understanding what it meant, and using what it means. That's observation, interpretation, application, or we call that second step, step dissection. So, before we can apply the text, we need to understand what the author meant. So, look at this uh, tombstone here that I have there in the box. There, This is a tombstone that was found at a cemetery, and it had the following words on it. As I am, soon you will be. Prepare yourself and follow me. Okay, so, um, there's, there's the epitaph. Epitaph. Epitaph, yeah. Thank you. Well, next to the tombstone, someone had written a note on a scrap of paper and pinned it to the ground with, with a stick, and, and it read like this, To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. So, the author of that, the, the writing on the tombstone is saying, Follow me. But, but, the, but the, the follow-up uh, response is, Well, first I want to know where you, where you went, right? Where you have gone. And um, then that will determine if I want to follow you or not. And uh, so the point is, we need to understand what the author meant before we want to apply it, right? We don't want to just follow this guy who may very well be in hell, right? It's kind of a, a silly illustration, but that's the point, is we can't move directly from uh, just the text or the observation all the way into the application without first understanding what he meant by that. And that's what we're trying to do with the text of Scripture. So that's where we're going today. We want to talk about application, we want to begin... Uh, to think about some principles of how we take what we've understood from the Scriptures and then apply it to our lives. And um, 
And then we'll finish up on uh, January 1st with, with the second part. Let me pray and ask God to help us as we do this. Father, would you send your Spirit upon us and allow us to be able to see the Scriptures as they are and to be able to apply some of the basic laws of human language and uh, be able to apply them to our understanding of, of your Word. And Lord, we want to be better at this because we, uh, we love to read your Word. We love to hear your Word preached. We love to, to uh, sing about your Word. We love to pray your Word. And so if we're going to apply it to our uh, specific circumstances, then we first need to understand it and we need to understand some of the principles um, that we need to apply it. So help us today as we think through some of these. In Jesus' name, amen. So application is what bridges the gap between our world and the world of the biblical author. So if we, if our world's here, the, the world of the biblical author is, is a long time away and many miles away, as we've said. You know, we got the last writings about 2,000 years ago, and the closest culture uh, of the Bible is about 5,000 miles away. So we live in very different worlds. And so in our world, we have all sorts of topics that are not even mentioned in the Bible. Okay, the Bible says nothing about karate, yoga, acupuncture, genetic engineering, acid rain, or nuclear power. It doesn't use those words at all. It doesn't use the words abortion, birth control, euthanasia, leverage buyouts, junk bonds, or managing for productivity. And it does not deal with public education, prison reform, insurance, television, movies, housing, waste disposal, AIDS, arthritis, or Alzheimer's disease. And, and besides that, I don't know of anyone who eats locusts and wild honey, and I also don't know anyone who washes uh, other believers' feet. Um, so, and I don't know of anyone that heals in synagogues or on the Sabbath or eats meat sacrificed to idols. Okay? So, so how do we get the truth of Scripture into our lives today? Because all those topics that I mentioned, many of those have much importance for us today. If the Bible doesn't use those words, how are we supposed to know what the Bible means? And what about these issues in the Bible that, that don't apply to us or they, they seem not to apply to us? That's kind of our, our goal here is to get from this first phase of observation move to, to um, interpretation and then finally here to application. According to the dictionary, uh, Webster's application is an act of putting to use. An act of putting to use. So application is putting an interpretation into practice. We want to put into use what we now know about what the author meant. An interpretation is tied to history. It extends the author's meaning through all the centuries to today so that it's relevant for us today. So that we can say that the application there in your handout is putting the author's intended meaning to use. I want to flesh that out a little bit and start with four principles today. We'll finish the next six next time we're together. Okay, the first four principles of application. Number one, application does not always perform what the author commanded but it always puts to use what the author intended. Okay, it doesn't always put, it, it does not always perform what the author commanded. Application answers the question, if the author of the passage were here today and he lived with us for a week, 
he would take his initial meaning and then help us apply it in our situation. And and so how would a how would an author of the passage, if he were here today, respond by applying it to our particular situation? And so op- application takes what the author meant and it brings us brings it to the table for us today so that we can we can uh, understand it. In other words, if the author lived with us, then then what kind of letter would might he write to us next week? He probably wouldn't say anything about meat sacrificed to idols, unless he was using an illustration from his time. He wouldn't say anything about locusts and wild honey. Uh, he would he would take what is going on around us, what's going on in their, our church, and he would he would uh, make specific points in that way. So meaning is the author's message to the specific audience, and meaning is what the author had to say, and is determined, remember, how, how we determine the meaning of the text is through what? How do we know, the, in one word, what's the, what's the most helpful tool that we have, obviously, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm not trying to give a trick question here, what kind of tool do we need in order to find out what the author means? How can we know, if we just plop open our Bible to one verse, how do we know what that verse means? Context. Context is key. Right, we need to understand what's going on around the text of Scripture that we're looking at. So look at the meeting. We looked, talked about this last week. Immediate context, and then the broader context, and then the whole biblical context. So context is key. If we want to know what he means, then we need to look at the surrounding context. So let me just uh, give you a couple examples. Um, Leviticus 19, verse 18 it says to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what did the author, what did Moses, um, speaking on behalf of God, what did he mean by that? Love your neighbor as yourself. What do you mean? Not a trick question either. This is, anybody could get this one. Okay. He just meant to love your neighbor as yourself. That was it. Okay, it's that simple. So, how would how would Moses expected his readers, his hearers, to apply that that command. What 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 would that look like for them? Okay, and who were their neighbors? Okay, at that time, right, they're standing at Mount Sinai, and they're just hanging out with a bunch of Jews, so Jewish people. The way that we apply "love your neighbor as yourself" is love my Jewish, you know. Um, my Jewish counterpart, my my Jewish colleague, and and then what about for us? How would we apply that verse today? We, is it that we only love Jewish people? Is that what God intended for us? As well, no. It, it means love our neighbor. Jesus expanded on that, Luke ten, right? When the when the Jewish religious leaders said, "Well, who is my neighbor? You know, how am I supposed to help that guy when I don't even know if he's my neighbor or not?" And Jesus has essentially said with the story, "Well." Anyone who has a need and you come into contact with them, that is your neighbor. So love them. Um, let's take a look at a couple in, in John's Gospel. Turn with me to John chapter 1. Alright, so first we want to... We're just doing some quick observation and dissection so that we can move to application for ourselves as an example. 
John 1, verse 12. Would someone read that for us? All right, what does John mean there? just want to summarize the verse. How would you summarize it? Okay, so whoever believes becomes a child of God. That comes right from the verse. Good. So what would be the application for John's initial readers? What would be the application for that? Okay, so their application is very simply, they must believe. There's actually lots of applications that come from this. You know, we need to take this message to other people and show them that they they must believe. We'll get into that in just a second. There's lots of different applications we can draw. But the main application is, meaning is, we, is that anyone who believes is a child of God. They have that privilege, the right to become a child of God. And so they must believe. So how does that apply to us? Same. It actually works out perfectly in this, this one that the application that John intended for his readers is the same application that the Holy Spirit intends for us as well, that we must believe. So, it's remember the verse before that says, he came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the privilege to become the sons of God. All right, how about John 20, 31? This one takes a little bit thought, more thought because there's a little bit of an implication here when it comes to the application part of it. I think we can all understand the meaning, uh, and so we'll get to that quickly, but but then to move to the application. John 20, 31. Would someone read that? Alright, so what does John mean here? Just summarize. Yeah. Okay, he's saying that that he's writing this letter so that people will believe that Jesus is the Christ. So what would be the application for his readers? Okay, good. So he, he's, he's giving more of an implication. I'm writing this letter. He's not giving directly a command, you believe. He's simply saying, this is why I'm writing this letter. So the application seems to be that you ought to believe. That's why I'm writing this letter. Figure it out. And the application for us... I think, again, this is no different, that we ought to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Well, we could look at some more um, that, that are pretty obvious, like Philippians 2, where um, um, Paul says to, um, he says to be humble like Christ, right? I forget how it starts. Why I'm... Yes. All right, so verse 5 says, have this attitude. What kind of attitude? Well, Jesus had a humble attitude in that he gave up what he rightly deserved or uh, he gave up his right in order to set that aside for the sake of people. So we ought also to, that's Paul saying this to his readers, you ought also to be humble like Christ. Have that same attitude. And this is a an application that actually works for all time since the time it's been written. We don't have to change the application there. It's just be humble. 
Um, but there are other applications, like in 1 Corinthians 8, we looked at a couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday night, where Paul says that, that if we're going to cause our brother to stumble, then we should not eat meat that's sacrificed to idols. We shouldn't do it. And what he was trying to say there is, his meaning was, I don't want other believers to, to stumble. I don't want them to have a setback in their faith. And the application for them was, actually, don't eat meat if it's going to cause your brother to stumble. For us, it's we must not do anything to cause our brother to stumble. We, we looked at that uh, a couple Wednesdays ago. Any questions on this first one? So, just because there's a command or an expectation in the Scripture... Um, uh, we don't always have to apply that specific command. Like he's saying, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Right? We don't have to apply that specific command. Um, instead, we need to keep it in the context of, of, um, uh, of our situation. And we'll, we'll look at some more examples with the tie into this first one a little bit later. Number two, all application must apply interpretations. All applications must apply interpretations. So turn back to Leviticus 19. And I've used this example before, but use it again. Part of the purpose of the second one is that we want to we want to be clear that there is an order in which we study the scriptures. That we move first from observation, looking at the overall clues, then to dissection or interpretation, looking at the details. Then we finally move to application. So we observe in order to interpret. We interpret in order to apply. We cannot apply what we have not first interpreted. We cannot interpret what we first have not observed. Okay, we don't just immediately go to the blood samples, you know, go back to the crime scene. We want to look at the overall situation because, um, you know, perhaps we're out in the middle of the woods and this is where a deer was gutted or something like that. So we don't have to just immediately go right to the dissection. We need to do an overall observation. What's going on here? And uh, so, so we have to go in this order, observation, interpretation, application. And that's why this picture helps. It ought to be like this. Observation leads to, notice, one correct interpretation, which leads to many applications. Remember one of our principles that we had at the beginning, which was um, the author only has one meaning. It's, there's no, um, the Latin phrase I was trying to um, figure out or try to remember last week was census plenier. It's, it means a double meaning of the Scripture. So we go back to these Old Testament texts and we say, well, yeah, that's what it meant for them, but here's what we think it means. And we're going to add a second meaning. For them, it meant this. For us, it means this. There's only one meaning. But there's multiple applications, aren't there? Okay, so we have our observation leads us to one meaning, what the author intended, and then that, that will lead us to many applications. So instead of the, the second um, graphic there is that, you know, a lot of times people just go right to many applications. This is the this is the um, the hunt and peck type um, model of preaching or Bible study, where you just kind of find a verse and go, okay, let's just figure out what, how this applies to myself without it 
ever um, doing the work of, of observation or interpretation. For example, there's a popular teaching which implies that because Moses was individually led by God, then we all should be uh, looking for the individual leading of God in our lives today. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 3, where God met Moses in the, book, in, in the burning bush, uh, we could say, well, God was, you know, this is where all these leadership, even Christian leadership books come from. You know, they take some principles like this and they try to skip the process of the, the observation and dissection, which actually understand what Moses originally meant and they move to their applications for their, how they run their business or something. You know, and, and they've missed this whole Im- huge, important step. What Pos- Moses was saying was not that um, that um, this ought to be the experience of every single person. Every single person needs to be individually led by God. He was simply uh, telling the story of what God did with him. Right? He he was he was um, he, he wasn't thinking about our local church concept. He wasn't thinking about you know, how to run a business. He was simply talking about a unique experience that he had with God at the burning bush. And so whatever we conclude, we have to find what the author intended in that, in that um, section of Scripture. And then we can apply it. So another example is, you know, Jesus' miracles. Well, Jesus did miracles. Does that mean that we all need to do miracles? Or how about the ceremonies prescribed by the priests of Israel? Does that mean that all churches today should be liturgical? Right? They had their vestments and, and, and all their, their garb and, and their rituals. So does that mean that we need to have that same sort of thing? And I would suggest only if we interpret those passages as what the author intended and, and if, if those things apply to us. So if we skip the process of interpretation... That, that if we move from observation directly to application, then what happens is every example in the Scripture becomes a command. Okay, so the example of Moses meeting God at the burning bush means that we also need to be a kind of our own self-made person. We need to be a, a singular person who leads out a huge nation. Okay, that's not the intention of that. Or, you know, the example of Jesus wearing sandals means that we also ought to wear sandals. Or that John the Baptist ate locusts and wild honey means we need to, right? Do you see how silly this is? Or that Paul was celibate, then we all must not be married. So, so examples turn into commands because why? We skipped this middle step of interpretation. And we just moved directly to application. So we have to deny that every single example uh, leads to a specific command. However, there are some examples that ought to be seen as commands. So we don't want to go to the other extreme. The one extreme is all examples are commands for me. Right? And I already showed how silly that is. But then the other extreme is no examples in Scripture are commands for me. They, they don't have the same force as a command for me. So I'm not even gonna, I'm just going to ignore them. But, but I would argue that there are some examples like in Acts 2.42 where the author Luke is establishing for us what a church looks like. And, and he, he talks about what kind of things are involved in a, in a church. 
He said they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking bread and prayer. And so by that example, he's not making a command, but I think when we understand that in its context, the dissection part, then actually the way that it applies is that it does have the, the force of a command, doesn't it? Or the, how about the example of choosing disciples in Acts chapter 6? Right? Was that just an example that we just kind of ignore, like, like Jesus wearing sandals or like John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey? Or is this an example that we ought to follow? And it seems to me, based on the way that the church has kind of followed this progression or followed this, this institution of deacons, then we ought to do the same thing. That we ought to select deacons who are men of the Spirit, that who, who have the best interests of God and the church in view. So let's look at this text here in Leviticus 19. Because, again, we, if we miss out on this middle step of dissection, we do ourselves a lot of damage. Leviticus 19, look at verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, and you shall love your neighbors as yourself. I am the Lord. So we already saw this one. We understood what it means, that it means to love your neighbor. For them, it was the Jewish neighbor. For us, it's anyone that we come in contact with. So, and certainly it would have been for them, just they didn't hang out with too many people other than, than Jews. Okay, so that's pretty simple. How about the next verse? Verse 19, You are to keep my statutes. You shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. So if we take the second one and immediately move from observation, don't sew two kinds of cloth together or don't wear two kinds of cloth together, then we move directly to application and say, you know, all of us are in, in violation of this, right? Today, I would guess. Um, but the problem is that we've moved from observation all the way to application without understanding the verse for what it means. What did the author intend? And when we look at a verse like verse 19, even when it comes on the heel of verse, heels of verse 18, we soon realize that our observation, the application principle doesn't work. You know, our, our application would be, I must not wear clothing made of cotton and polyester or wool and cotton or rayon and silk. And, and that would eliminate most of the clothes that are available today. So since that doesn't sound right, what do we often say with a verse like this? I guess this verse doesn't apply to me. But how does that square with what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? What do you say there? All Scripture is inspired by God and is what? Profitable. Right. There's value in every part of Scripture except for Leviticus 19, 19. Is that what he means? Except for genealogies? No. All Scripture is profitable in some way, and our job is to figure out how it does apply to us. But we can't figure out how it applies till, till we first interpret it. All right, so I don't... I mean, I, I do want to continue to beat a dead horse, but I probably should move on. Let's move on to number three. Number three, if it cannot be interpreted, then it cannot be applied. If it cannot be interpreted, then it cannot be applied. So, there are some cases where we're going to come to a text of Scripture and we simply can't understand what the author had in view there. Um, now, 
hopefully that's not ho- I mean hopefully that's not a large portion of the scriptures and I think in general the scriptures are easy enough to understand that is um, that that we can get the basic idea from using the basic laws of of language and also being illumined by the spirit to help us uh, understand the application of it but remember observation notices what what there is interpretation uses the context to determine two things we want to inter- we want to determine the meaning so what was the meaning for the author's audience and then we also want to understand if we can the intention behind his his writing like why did he write these things to these people at this time and this place and then that should lead us into the application um application always applies the author's intention but if the intention cannot be determined then we can't just move from observation to application so again this is probably only like one percent or less of the bible but but let me just give you an example how about in deuteronomy 14:21, where moses gives a command do not boil a young goat in his mother's milk or in her or his yeah i guess his it's do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So, what is the meaning of that? I don't know. What is the purpose of that? Why would Moses even have a law like that? Obviously, these laws are coming from God, but why would God have a law like that? And the What's that? Okay, that's about the best we could come up with. God said it, it was enough. But as far as the particulars, how do we apply not boiling a goat in his mother's milk, then we can't, frankly, right? Unless we step back like what Paul's doing here, and we step step back and take a broader, a broader look at it and just say, we don't know the individual interpretation of this. We don't know exactly why God would, would say something like this or what even this means. But we can take a step back and say that God knows everything, and now we can move to the application. Okay, I'm going to trust God even when I don't understand um, maybe something like that, but but generally, when you come across the text that you can't interpret, then don't you, you can't apply it. Now, that that opens the door for plausible deniability. You familiar with that? Um, your kids are probably good at this. That is that um, uh, they didn't know that the dog made a mess on the floor. So how were they supposed to do anything about it? Right? They didn't know that the garbage was full, so how were they supposed to take it out, even though it's their job? Okay, and, and husbands are good at this as well, uh, in much more um, refined or uh, advanced ways, I would say. All right. So, so my, what I'm not trying to do here is give you plausible deniability for the text of Scripture. Say, well, you know what? I can't interpret it, or I don't have the time, and so I'm not going to apply it. Um, again, this is a small section of the scripture. Number four, never change an author's intent because of what is going on in the culture. In 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 the culture. Any questions on one, two, three before I dive in here? Number four. Okay, let me just offer two general observations with regard to the reason that that we can never change the author's intent based on what's going on in culture. First, societies tend to move from a from sort of conservative principles to the liberalizing of those same principles. Right? That's just in general. I'm not just not saying 
the United States only. I'm saying societies in general are that way. For example, um, in the, the brief 70-year rise and fall of the Soviet Union and its communism, it began under Lenin in 1917. And it was flushed out under Stalin, began deteriorating under Khrushchev, fell apart uh, under Brezhnev, and then finally was dismantled by Gorbachev and Reagan in 1989. So you had some kind of... of um, you had you had this culture that is is deteriorating and and um, it's changing over time. And if we base our our application, if we base our interpretation of what's going on in the scriptures on what's going on in society, then then we'll um, we'll be shifting. And, and maybe a better example is what's going on in our society, right? The the conservative principles that we have um, that have just just changed over time and. Here's the second observation. That is that the religion of a society will move in the same direction and the same speed. Okay, now when I say religion, I'm saying religion in general. Um, but but it'll move in the same direction and the same speed as the society moves. The only difference is that it tends to be on the conservative edge of things. So I'm a terrible artist, and I'm, but, and I'm not a son of an artist, but let's say that you have society moving this direction, then what's happening here is you have the religious the religious sector of the society is moving in the same direction and the same speed as society, only a little bit farther behind. Right? That that what was once reprehensible here, this is what society's doing, religion Religion in general thought, this is terrible. We would never do that. And what happens? Over time, they've moved on. Society's moved to here, and they've found something new that's reprehensible, and religion has moved to this spot. They've taken over and said, you know what? We're a little behind, but we agree with... And they wouldn't say it that way, but, but just think about the changes in morality that are being adopted by the society in general. And what you see now that's being adopted by society, you can just wait a few years. And religion in general is going to follow in that direction. In 1917, many Russian Orthodox priests went to prison rather than follow communism. But then by the end of, uh, by the end of the communism's rise, really, um, or towards the end, in the mid-80s, many of the priests became KGB informers. Right before, they were willing to go to prison in order to take a stand against it, and now they're actually participating in it. That's because they moved with the culture, but they were a little bit on the conservative edge. In the 50s, the morals being taught in our public schools were very similar, only a little bit more liberal than those taught in your average conservative church. Right. So if you want to know what was taught in, in a lot of churches, and again, I'm keeping this churches and religion very broad, but if you want to know what was taught in a lot of churches during a specific time period, just look at what was taught in the public schools several years earlier. So that the general culture of America and the West today focuses on tolerance, right? not only of races and creeds and nationalities, but also of moral and ethical standards. So that divorce and remarriage, which once was frowned upon in our society as a whole, is now actually... Uh, of course, the society has moved on from that, and they just see it as a normal thing. 
And what what's our church? What have our churches done uh, after several years, right? What about the role of women? The the equality of women that is they have they are allowed to have the same kinds of positions within the church or the family. Um, or or what about the the idea of homosexuality? I mean, we talked about it at the business meeting a couple of weeks ago, right? That that our society has moved to a a position that we would just think unthink- that we would find unthinkable just 30 years ago, that anyone in the society would find unthinkable, let alone someone in the church. And now, our society has moved to allow it and embrace it, and and churches are not too far behind, are they? In, in 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 allowing the same sort of thing. I mean, you've had uh, I don't want to say the wrong Presbyterian group, but one of the Presbyterian groups, I think it's PCUSA, but hope I hope I didn't say that wrong. But they 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 actually had a homosexual minister, and the 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 um, Presbytery was fine with that. You know what? We're going to allow that sort of thing. Obviously, you see that in more liberal churches as well, like the Episcopalians and things. But but um. But the, but the point is is that as society moves, religion is kind of moving right behind it, kind of embracing the things that they once denied. Um, so that's the second observation. Um, but when we were thinking through interpretation, the the number the, the eighth principle that we looked at, we we talked about the fact that the cultural information outside of the Bible should not be used to interpret the Bible. And it's also true that our culture should not be used to avoid applying the Bible. For example, some suggest that not accepting divorce and remarriage or calling homosexuality a sin or not allowing women elders is out of step with our current culture. So we need to get back in step with what our culture is doing. If we want to be able to reach our culture, then we need to get rid of these old antiquated ideas of, um, you know, of disallowing women in leadership or or uh, disallowing homosexuals within the, the, the membership of the church, uh, things like that. And so what, we, what we're doing is we're taking application based on what's going on in the culture rather than what the Scriptures are saying. Rather than allowing the Scriptures to speak, here's what God says, here's what God means, and now we're going to apply this to our situa- situation. We cannot allow X, Y, or Z, right? Um, because once we use the society as our, kind of our litmus test of how we should apply, then what happens to the Bible? Right? We can, frankly, and this is what a lot of churches do, just set the Bible aside. And we don't even need it because um, we're just kind of seeing what's what's going on in the culture. We want to kind of dip into the culture, find out what's going on, and, and that's what we're going to preach about. That's, we're gonna, that's how we're going to make our... Um, that's how we're going to build our, our uh, congregation and what we're going to unify around and everything. Um, and, and part of the reason for this is that people see the Bible as out of step with culture. You know, for Israel to to be forbidden, like in the Old Testament, they were forbidden to marry foreign wives. Right? Um, why was that? You know, we, we, we might someone like, like look at this and, and accuse her of us or or an antagonist of us might say, well, you know, look how out of date some of these principles are. You know, you you recognize that that's a problem, right? That that um, that, that the Bible called for uh, Jews not to marry Gentiles. So, 
you recognize that a problem. What about all these other things? You need to start recognizing that that homosexuality is okay, or that that you know these same sort of ideas we talked about before. But but what did God mean by that? What was the purpose of that? Does anybody remember some of the context of that command, specific command? Do not marry foreign wives. Exactly. So was it so much about their skin color or what nationality they were? No, that's not. So again, we need to get back to the meaning. And, and by the way, we have lots of God-fearing Gentiles who married Jews that, that I think God was in favor of. Um, obviously, just go through the genealogy of Jesus Christ and see some of the, the, the ladies like Ruth, for example, who, who was a Moabite. And yet, um, she was a God-fearing person, and, and in that situation, it was completely right. So, so that's where this kind of thing is coming from, um, and we just, need to, we just need to recognize it. So let's turn to 1 Peter 3. We'll finish up with an example here and see if you have any questions. 1 Peter 3. So... The main point of today is we need to make sure we understand what the Bible says. We need to understand what it means. Then we can apply it in multiple different ways for us. Um, but we can't miss the interpretation step, and we can't worry about what our culture is saying. Okay? We can't worry about what they're doing and what they're expecting of us. First Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the world, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So Peter's saying, be submissive, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Um, So notice that middle line of verse 1, even if they're disobedient to the word, that you still need to submit to them, even if they're disobedient and disobedient. To, to God. Uh, and and the argument that he uses in verse 6, notice, notice how he applies an Old Testament example to himself because he's first understood it. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do his right without being frightened by any fear. So Peter's example here, he, he takes from something that is not contemporary something that happened 2,000 years prior to his writing in a completely different culture, right? She was a Bedouin wandering around in Canaan, living in a tent. Peter was a businessman. And he and his audience lived in houses and cities governed by the Roman Empire. And yet he considered Sarah a relevant model for culture. Now, if you, if you keep up with, with a lot of the, the conversation that's going around um, particularly with preaching, is that the preachers have to be relevant. That the, the goal is to be relevant. We want to say what is is helpful for the people, in, in the sense that that they're coming with a specific issue. So find out what that issue is and speak to that issue. And what Peter's doing is he's actually using an example from something that they would call irrelevant. Right? It doesn't matter what happened 2,000 years ago in a different culture. And Peter's saying, no, it does matter. Because there's, a, there's an abiding principle that was there in the example of Sarah that fits, that works, that is, we could say, timeless, that works for all cultures of all time. And so I'm saying to you, Peter's saying, you wives, 
be submissive to your husband, husbands in the sense that they have a chaste and respectful behavior which reflects a gentle and quiet spirit. So Peter's meaning is that, that, that um, they, they ought to have a proper behavior towards their husband. His intention is that, that these women would act biblically. The fact that he's mentioning this probably means that there were some there were some problems among these ladies of wanting to usurp their authority. Um, so, so that wives ought to be like Sarah in that they ought to look to God, think more vertically. What does God want of me rather than look horizontally? What, you know, what are all the problems going on uh, with my husband's life, and what kind of what kind of things can I justify my disobedience? Right? How can I justify my disobedience? I can look at all these problems in my husband's life and therefore I don't have to submit to him. Uh, the application then for us now is, okay, if, if I were a woman, it would be, then I must submit to my husband. That's my spe- that would be my specific application if I were a woman, right? If I were a married woman. Um, then I'm not going to react, even though he may come at me harshly, I'm not going to react in that way, but rather I'm going to act react in a chaste and respectful and gentle and with a gentle and quiet spirit. But but I, being a man, the way that it applies to me is that I must, especially being a pastor, that I must encourage wives with disobedient husbands particularly. That's the direct application, right? Wives with disobedient husbands ought to submit to their wives. So, I didn't use that in order to, to, to get at any of you ladies this morning. That wasn't the point of it. The point was just to show you an example of how Peter used an old example of of a lady who was godly and, and considered about God's desires, and, and he used that for his contemporary application. He, and in that way, he was relevant, wasn't he? And the same thing, we can use that same example, even though we're, you know, another two thousand years removed from from uh, from Sarah. Questions, comments. All right, a lot of what we looked at today was was kind of a um, nuanced. A lot of these rules were kind of nuanced. That is, they're a little bit different, but they kind of all fit together. Next week, we get into some uh, a few more difficult principles to, to think through, but or not next week, two weeks from now. No Sunday school next week, Christmas Day, so just the morning service. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for your word and... Lord, continue to refine our thinking on how to apply it. Thank you that that it is relevant for us today, and and we pray that you help us not to be lazy in our study of the Bible and our reading of the Bible, um, even in our uh, reflection on what is being preached. We want to be able to apply the the text of Scripture, um, because really, what good is the Bible if it if it's only words and and we never apply it to ourselves? We would be um, like a hearer of the word and not a doer, and we don't want to be like that. We want to be like someone who looks at the, our face in the mirror and sees the problems because of the word and then applies it like the, the wise man who built his house on the rock. May we be like that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.